The following is a recording of the Thomas Paine Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. We are located in Collegeville, Pennsylvania. We are also located on the web at www.tpuuf.org. Please come visit us. One of the most popular and familiar passages from the Christian Bible is from the first two letters of the Apostle Paul that he wrote in the fifth century CE AD to the Christian community that he'd founded in Corinth. Corinth was a city in southern Greece. This passage extols the nature, the value, and the power of love. Right? If you've ever attended a marriage ceremony in any Christian church, right, you almost surely heard this read before the vows were exchanged and the blessings conferred. The passage ends with the memorable words, and now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Right? Yeah, okay. Faith, hope, love. Christian philosophers like Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, and Thomas Aquinas crowned these three theological virtues. Theological virtues, not just virtues, but theological virtues. Now, in general, virtues are traits that dispose us to be and to do good, right? That's what a virtue is, right? But as theological virtues, according to the patriarchs of Christianity, these three dispose a Christian to achieve the highest good, namely the blessing of God and eternal salvation. Right? And theologians like Augustine and Thomas elaborate on the dynamic interplay of these virtues, how one affects and is affected by the other, but still they set love in the place of highest honor. But what does that mean for faith and hope? Are they just also rands, you know, the silver and bronze medalists in the race for redemption and salvation? Well, this morning I'd like us to take another look at this triple play of virtues, particularly the virtue of hope. On the Christian liturgical calendar, the Advent season, the season of hope, begins today. Advent, as you may recall, is the four-week period leading up to Christmas Day. And our fellowship, at least in my experience here, has always acknowledged this season in some way. We recognize the influence of the Judeo-Christian tradition on the evolution of our religious faith. Right? And even though most UUs today don't ascribe to the literal meaning and the Christian understanding of Advent as a time to prepare our hearts to receive Jesus, right? as a time of anticipation and expectation for the birth of a son of God, a divine savior, uh, who will wash away all the sins of the world and found a new kingdom on earth and lead us to eternal life in some heavenly realm. Right? Many of you were raised in Christian churches, so you know the drill. Right? Okay. So what might we UUs make of this Advent season? Can we too envision hope as more than an emotional state or an added mental attitude, if we wouldn't view hope as a theological virtue, could we view it as a spiritual virtue? Can we embrace it as an enduring, universal part of any deep faith 
and any true love. And it's not bound then to any or to any particular religion. What might that kind of hope look like for us? What would it do for us? And most importantly, as the great philosopher Immanuel Kant once asked, what may we hope for? Good morning, everyone. <laughs> uh, welcome to Sunday worship at the Thomas Paine Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. We are a principle-based, liberal, welcoming faith community in Collegeville, Pennsylvania, on the web at tpuuf.org, and wherever you may be this first Sunday of December, this first Sunday of Advent. I'm Jerry Lazaro. I chair the worship committee here at the fellowship, and on behalf of the committee and the fellowship as a whole, I welcome you. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, you're welcome here. Whatever you must in conscience, truly, responsibly believe, you're welcome here. Wherever you may be on your spiritual journey, on your life's journey, however you identify or express your gender, whomever you love, you're welcome here. And you're invited to worship with us this morning and every Sunday morning. And we begin with opening words by Reverend Dr. Elizabeth M. Strong. Reverend Strong was the 2010 recipient of the UUA's Angus H. McLean Award for Excellence in Religious Education. Today we celebrate a dream awakening. Today we worship with renewed hope in our hearts. Today we act on an audacity of hopes and dreams for the future. Today we begin the hard work of justice, equity, and compassion in all human relations. For today is a day like no other, and it is ours to shape. So with that hope in our hearts, let's now light our chalice. Linda Stauffer, I believe, is Linda here today? I guess she didn't make it. Oh, she was going to uh, do our chalice lighting words. What, what, what happened? <laughs> All right, but, well, tell you what, Ann, don't worry about it. Let me just, Ann, I'll, I'll just... I'll just do the chalice lighting words. All right. The chalice and the flame together form the symbol of our free faith. And we light our chalice this morning with words by Pat Oriba Lichty. The chalice we light today is a symbol of our faith. It binds us together as one people, a reminder that our strength is in our shared hope for the world and that our common work is the creation of beloved community among ourselves and in the world. And as I light the peace lamp, please respond. May peace be with us. Okay, now we have another special lighting this morning. As I said, today is the first Sunday of Advent. And so, as we recognition of that, we'll light the first Advent candle. You know, there are four for each of the weeks before Christmas. Two are purple, one is pink, and the final one is white. And we'll light the first one, which is, coincidentally, referred to as the candle of hope.
And as I light that candle, let me share with you words by Sister Macrina Wiedeker. She's an author, retreat director, and a Benedictine monastic. One morning during prayer, she writes, I was just thinking how much alike hope and baking powder are. Quietly getting what is best in me to rise, awakening the hint of eternity within. So may this candle we light encourage us to remain hopeful. May it help awaken the best in us, and may it connect us to the eternal. May it remind us not only to infuse life with hope, but also seek to realize what we hope for. And now we have a moment for all ages today. I don't know if we have any young folks who want to come up front. Yes, we should have the gathering song. Uh, you, we sang this song back in May at the UU Troubadour service. I don't have any hope that you guys remember it, but fortunately, this version starts out with a very slow rendition of the first verse to remind us of the melody, and then we'll just go through and sing all three verses as written. Morning has come, arise and greet the day. Dance with joy and sing a song of gladness. The light of hope here shines upon each face. May it bring faith to guide our journey. People can see the screen.
and now, <laughs> we do have a moment for all ages. Uh, would any of you guys like to come up here for the moment for all ages? You just want to stay back there. Yeah, you can, you can come on up. Yeah. All right, Ryan, here you go. Grab a seat. Matthew? Who else? Anya's question. Okay, that's good. Thanks, Ryan. Okay. As you guys probably have figured out by now, I generally prefer telling a story to reading one. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Here. Grab a seat. <laughs> Where'd it go? All right. Uh, I'm not sure why that is exactly, except that, you know, I do know that once we humans figured out how to speak, we started telling stories. Right? And eventually, many of these stories were written down in books that we can read today. But long before they were written down, they were passed down from one generation to the next by telling and retelling the story, right? One such story is the story of Pandora's Jar. You, ever, you know this story? Okay. This story was told and retold for centuries before a Greek poet named Hesiod wrote it down around 3,000 years ago. That's the oldest written copy we have of this story, 3,000 years, right? So have you ever heard the expression warning someone not to say or do something? That would be opening Pandora's box. You ever heard that, right? Uh, what would that mean? What does that mean? It's a warning, don't do it, right? Why, because what's gonna happen if you open Pandora's box? A ton of bad spirits are going to come out and go throughout the world and harm people, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, opening Pandora's box generally means doing or planning to do something with unforeseen and unpleasant consequences, right? Doing something that will cause a lot of problems, problems we didn't even have before, problems we didn't even know existed before, right? In short, it's saying, don't go there, right? It's not a good thing to do. Don't even talk about it. Right? Well, where did that expression come from? <laughs> it came from a story called Pandora's Jar. Uh, it's a Greek myth. A myth is a kind of story, right? A story that seeks to explain the mysteries of the world and the reasons why people behave the way they do. And usually these stories seek to teach us a lesson, right? Uh, they're like fables. Think of Aesop's fables, right? There are hundreds of them. Uh, not all of them, or maybe any of them, were ever written by Aesop. In fact, we don't even know if Aesop actually was an actual person, right? But anyway, uh, you see up there on the screen an image of Pandora. Now, the name Pandora in Greek meant all gifted, or one having all gifts. And you may notice that Pandora is opening a big clay jar. That's because in Greek mythology, it was a clay jar that Pandora opened. How did it come to be Pandora's box? Well, unfortunately, some Renaissance scholar about 500 years ago either got a corrupted copy of the manuscript or made a really bad translation of the word pithos, 
which in Greek meant clay jar. But anyway, that's how we got to be Pandora's box, right? Anyway, who was Pandora? Um, she was created by the gods to be almost like perfectly looking, right? But was a vehicle for doing bad things in, on earth, right? Okay. Uh, does that sound familiar? Uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, the Adam and Eve story. Right? Okay, right, right. Anyway, Pandora was the first woman created by the gods. She was given a jar by Zeus, the chief of all the gods, and he was really mad. Can I say pissed off? He was really mad <laughs> at the human race because Prometheus, the god who had created human beings out of clay, had stolen fire from the gods and given it to people. And also, Prometheus played a trick on Zeus, you know, he, he, which, which got Zeus to accept a sacrifice which was less than worthy of a god. So he was really ticked off. So he figured he's going to get even. So he gives Pandora this jar, right, which contained all kinds of bad things, right? You say all these bad, you know, hunger, war, lies, disease, even death. Now, Pandora... She didn't know what was in the jar, right? She just knew there was stuff in there, right? And she was deliberately told, don't open this, right? Okay, but what happened? Can we, what happened? She opened it, you know, you know, you can't, what's the sense if you tell somebody, don't think of pink elephants, what do they do? They immediately think of pink elephants. If you tell them, don't do that, what do they do? They immediately go and do it, right? Okay, so she opened it and out flew all the bad stuff right? Just about any bad thing you can think of. But one thing got caught on the lip of the jar and remained in the jar when Pandora, when she realized what was going on, slid the lid back on the jar. You know what that was? Hope. In fact, it was a goddess called Elpis, which meant hope, the goddess of hope, right? And in most interpretations of the story, that means that we humans even in the face of all the bad things that we see in the world around us, right, still have hope, right? Okay. But there's a detail in this story that puzzles us, huh? Like, remember, according to the story, Zeus had put only bad things in the jar, right? So how did hope get in there? I mean, isn't hope a good thing? You'd think so, right? Isn't hope a good thing? Well, the problem here is, again, translation. <laughs> Actually, in Greek, in, in Koine Greek, ancient Greek, uh, elpis meant anticipation or expectation of something good or bad. Not necessarily something good, right? Okay. It's more similar to the English word foreboding than it is to the word we have hope, right? Okay. Now, foreboding refers to what? A fear or anxiety about something happening that's bad or that we don't want to happen, right? And, and why is that bad? What can happen to us if we're afraid of what will occur? What, what might it cause us to do? Not do it, right? Not do something. It might actually... 
cause us to try to run away from it, never look at it, never try to deal with it. And if we're anxious, if we're nervous or worried about something, what, what could happen? We screw up. We get so flustered. We, 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 get, we, we get so upset that we'd say the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong place or do the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong place, right? So fear and anxiety could prevent us from acting to prevent something bad from happening or to try to deal with it once it does, right? So in that case, it's probably good that hope didn't get out of the jar, right? Because then we'd have no hope. <laughs> There's nothing that we could do about anything, right? Okay. So we'd see every situation as hopeless then. We, what happens when we throw up our hands and say, this situation is hopeless? What are we, what, what are we saying? Aren't we saying, I don't know how to make this situation any better? Right? We may even be saying there's nothing that I or anyone could do to make it better or to prevent it from happening. Right? In short, we feel powerless to change anything. We might just sit back and do nothing. And that would be a bad thing. Yeah, right? Okay. By the way, this isn't the only version of the story. And in some versions of the story, it's not even Pandora who opens the box, right? And the box doesn't just contain bad things, but that's for another day, right? Okay. So, but there's Pandora's jar and all that bad stuff coming out of it, all right? So as we enter this Advent season, this season of hope, why do we hang on to the meaning of hope as a wish or desire for something good to happen, but let's not forget that wishing and hoping won't make it happen. Back in the day, the, remember the old rock and roll song, wishing and hoping and hoping and wishing? Yeah, okay. It won't happen, right? Okay. What does make it happen? Our <laughs> action, right? Our plans and our actions to do something, right? And even though we can never be 100% sure that we'll make a difference, right? We still have hope that we can, right? So we try, right? Okay, are you guys going off the classes today? Okay, well then let's sing our folks off the classes here. All right. Go now in peace, go now in peace. May the spirit of love surround you everywhere, everywhere you may go. <laughs> According to the great Greek philosopher Aristotle, e elpida ene to onero eno zipnio anthropo. In other words, hope is the dream of a waking man. Now, if we strip the gender term out of that statement, right, we come up with a more concise formulation, hope is a waking dream, which is, of course, the title of our service this morning. But in any formulation, what, is, what can that statement mean? What does it tell us about the nature of hope? What does it have to do with the idea of hope as a virtue? A trait that disposes us to do good, a disposition which, in conjunction with faith and love, 
lays the foundation for spiritual growth, something that we you use covenant to affirm and promote, right? It's our third principle. Well, we could start by asking, what's a dream? I mean, basically, a dream is something we experience while we're asleep. That experience involves images and narratives that may relate to the external world of objects and events that we know or know of, but are occurring only in our minds. In some cases, the dream may be a kind of vision, right? An image or narrative of a world that differs from the world we know through our senses. I could dream of being chased by a creature that bears no resemblance to any beast I've ever seen. In fact, I had a recurring nightmare like that when I was a kid. Right? Okay. I could find myself talking to someone I'd never met before, who may or may not resemble anyone I know. I could dream of walking through a landscape that I've never seen before. It may have some familiar features, but it isn't anything that I really think exists. But I can also conjure Im such images in my mind when I'm awake as well. I can reconstruct past experiences even, perhaps imagining what I might or should have said in a certain situation, right? How many times do you do that yourself? Oh, I should have said this. Well, oh, I wish I'd said that. Yeah, I say, I, okay. uh, and that reconstruction can seem as real as any lucid dream we might have when we're asleep. Say I narrowly escaped being T-boned by a careless driver. Later, I imagine what it would have been like to be struck by that other car. My mental reconstruction could be so vivid that I actually have a physical reaction. I shudder. My palms sweat. My heart beats faster. But when we dream or daydream about the past, hope doesn't enter the picture, does it? Hope is involved only when we're envisioning the future. Now, last Sunday morning, I could say, I hope the Philadelphia Eagles will beat the Buffalo Bills. I can't say that now. Well, it would be meaningless to say it now, right? The game was played. The Eagles beat them by the skin of their teeth, of course, as most of you know, right? But that's another story. Likewise, this past Thursday, I could have said, gee, I hope the U.S. House of Representatives will expel that George Santos. It would be meaningless to say that today. It's a done deal. He's gone. Now, to truly understand Aristotle's definition, though, we have to consider what the word hope signified to the ancient Greeks. Remember that story of Pandora's jar and the meaning of the Greek word elpis, expectation or anticipation of something. And that something could be good or bad. So when we're awake and envisioning the future, when we're not thinking of the what is, but thinking of the what's not yet, we're experiencing hope in a way that Aristotle and his compatriots understood it. We're anticipating or expecting something. We are engaged in a conscious process of envisioning what may be, what might be, what could be, what ought to be. Which brings us to the theme of this morning's service. Not a roundabout way, but we got there. Okay. And to an understanding of hope as a virtue, which in conjunction with faith and love, offers a path to spiritual growth. As I said, something that we, you, use affirm in our third principle. And reconfiguring hope as a virtue 
offers a perspective on the Advent season as a time of waiting and anticipation, as a season of hope, but not one that's bound to one or to any particular religious tradition, but in a more contemporary, in a more universal sense. Let's start by revisiting that passage from the first Corinthians. As I mentioned before, I think you all know that the earliest texts of the Bible, the Christian Bible, written in Koine Greek, as were translations, by the way, of the Hebrew and the Aramaic texts of the Old Testament of the Bible. So when Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, talks about hope, he isn't referring to a wish or desire the way we would be when we use the English word hope. He was talking about elpis, expectation or anticipation. And in the context of his letter, he was referring to anticipation of, of what God has promised to the faithful. That, that concept of hope as a you know, promise of God, right, was given more specific meaning by theologians like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, when Christian belief and practice had become more clearly defined. And hope was deemed a theological virtue by these great patriarchs of the church because they saw it as the foundation of the Christian faith. In fact, hope became associated with the idea of eschatological hope. Eschatological big hope, what that means is the anticipation that God will make all things new raise people to everlasting life with God in joyful celebration, include people from every culture and every nation, and all personal pain and suffering, eliminate all societal evils and harm, and bring reconciliation and healing to all humankind. Right? That's, that's that hope, that eschatological hope, right? And by the way, depending on what translation of the Bible you prefer, you'll find the word hope uh, about somewhere between 130 and 170 times. And that certainly explains why Christmas and the time leading up to it was a reason for hope. It's what it was all about. And according to these people, what's the Christian faith was all about, right? But that certainly doesn't seem to fit well with what most you use think of when they hear the word hope. Right, but it, it's, it's too easy to, to kind of dive down the rabbit hole of <laughs> roots of words and get tangled up in them. So, so let's, let's get out of that rabbit hole for a minute. Let's cut to the chase, right? Or rather, let's cut back to Pandora's jar. <laughs> if Elpis is understood as foreboding, then it probably was a good thing that it wasn't released from the jar. Because that would, expect the, that would dispose us to expect the worst, to be fearful of what the future might bring, right? to be so anxious about the future that we may not even want to face it. It could discourage us from taking any action or believing that action will make any difference. Can't do nothing about it. Right? Now, the Greeks did have a word that meant more, than, uh, more like what we mean by hope. Uh, and that word was eulpis, E-U-L-P-I-S. E-U was a, a, an, a, a, what do you call it? 
Anyway, the, a syllable that meant something good, like euthanasia, good death, right? Euphoria, state of, you know, good, good state, right? Okay. And in the Aesop fable, generally titled Zeus in the Clay Jar, another version of this whole thing with the jar and the, you know, the jar of clay and all the stuff in it, Opus is a gift that didn't get away from us. But, you know, that too has a downside. What if we fall into the trap of being so hopeful that we presume that it's enough just to wish for something to make it happen? Right? Just wish for it and the universe will deliver. Just say it to the universe. The universe will give it to you. I, 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 I like New Age stuff, but that one really just... Get out of here. You know, okay, the universe doesn't give a damn about us, let's face it. As George Carlin... Uh, talked about many times. <laughs> okay. uh, and what if it leads to a kind of naive optimism that the French philosopher Voltaire ridiculed in his novel Candide? You know, the main character has adopted the belief that all is for the best in this, the best of all possible worlds. Of course, in the novel, we find war, rape, cannibalism, all kinds of lies and cruelty, right? Fraud, everything, right? Okay, right. All the evils that were let out of that jar, right? Okay. And because it is, I guess I presume it's as it should be. So this is where I think we can begin to imagine hope as a spiritual value. Because we could view hope as a middle way between the path of presumption, on the one hand, and the road to despair. That is, we can proclaim, as George Bernard Shaw once wrote, and Robert F. Kennedy Sr. once quoted, right? Some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream of things that never were and ask, why not? Right? That is, we can resist presumption. And because we believe we're not powerless to affect change, we remain hopeful in the face of frustration, disappointment, even failure. You know, yesterday I was in a concert, it's a Christmas concert, and this promise of new life and the hope of a better world, right, were reiterated in so many of the songs. Like the lines from the hymn, O Holy Night. We all know, right? What's that like? A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Right? Well, I, I find in those lines the essence of hope is a spiritual value. It becomes a spiritual value when it doesn't just reflect what it is that we hope will happen for us. Gee, I hope I get that job. Gee, I, I, I hope that uh, my neighbor is, is, is not going to say something mean to me tomorrow or something like that. Right? It becomes a spiritual value when it reflects a deep longing to see a world where sadness, sorrow, and pain Maybe they can't be eradicated, but at least they can be mitigated. And as for Advent, that time of waiting and expectation, it's a time to look deep into yourself and ask, what do I really hope for? And ask myself too, right, what can I do and perhaps urge others to do to realize what I hope for? You know, ultimately, Augustine, uh, who happened to be a professor of rhetoric before he 
converted to Christianity and became a Christian theologian, one of the patriarchs of the Christian church, he knew that the most powerful form of persuasion is how we live. He said, or he wrote, bad times, hard times. This is what people keep saying. But let us live well, and times shall be good. We are the times, such as we are, such are the times. Such as we are, such are the times. Or as he says elsewhere, you are hoping for the good? Be what you hope for. And I think, again, if we think of hope as a spiritual virtue, we have to think of it in a way that avoids being overly confident and overly proud. That is, we need to approach this awesome enterprise with humility and with modesty. You know, I really take heart and consolation in the words, uh, in fact, they're in our hymnal as one of the readings, of Edward Everett Hale. He said, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. And you know we need that. Uh, Maybe if you remember, Larry Pierce, uh, a teacher in seminary, Parker Palmer, who is uh, revered as a uh, very great teacher in uh, seminaries today, or was, uh, he said this, he said, the deeper our faith, the more doubt we must endure. The deeper our hope, the more prone we are to despair. The deeper our love, the more pain its loss will bring. And these are a few of the paradoxes that we must hold as human beings. If we refuse to hold them in the hopes of living without doubt, despair, and pain, we'll also find ourselves without faith, hope, and love. So, you know, in both the Greek and the Judeo-Christian creation myths, humans were fashioned from clay by a god. So perhaps Pandora's jar is really a metaphor for life itself for the huge, beautiful, uncontrollable, and unfathomable mystery we cannot contain or fully comprehend. All we can do is hold tight to the lip of the jar as the mystery unfolds and realize that hope is a waking dream, a dream in which we envision a better life, a better world, but also because we're awake and not asleep, we can actually act to affect change. One of the worst things that happens in a dream, right? When something's bad and, and you're powerless, you're paralyzed, you can't do anything. Oh, it's one of the worst nightmares you have, right? Okay. The thing's chasing you, but you can't run. <laughs> that kind of thing, right? So we can actually act to affect change. And if our acts are to be virtuous, right, they must emanate from love. That is from compassion and goodwill toward all creatures. Because that's really what the word love meant in Paul's letter. The, the Latin word for that would be caritas, which translates very badly into English as charity. But what it really meant was a goodwill, a compassion toward, toward all. Right. And ultimately, it's virtuous when we act upon a faith, on an unshakable belief 
that we're not powerless and that the something we can do is really worth doing and worth doing as well as we're able as well as we're able so so be it and amen uh, we come to that part of our service now where we invite people in our congregation who are experiencing a joy lifting their spirit up or a concern or sorrow weighing it down to bring that joy or sorrow to the light of the faith community um, after a musical interlude which is an instrumental version of one of the most common uh, songs done during advent o come o come emmanuel Mike McNeil will instruct us how to participate in matters of the heart. We can bring this time of sharing to a close and as we generally do we will sing a spirit of life and the words will appear up along with a video on the screen here momentarily
Our closing words this morning are from Reinhold Niebuhr, one of the great uh, theologians of the 20th century. This is from his book, The Irony of American History. Nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we are saved, we must be saved by hope, by faith. And nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we must be saved by love. And no virtuous act is quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend or foe as it is from our standpoint. Therefore, we must be saved by the final form of love, which is forgiveness. And I think that quote leads us to our closing song this morning, There is More Love Somewhere. The lyrics affirm our faith in the search for more love, more hope, more joy in our lives and in our troubled world. Without hope, we'll never summon the courage and the perseverance to seek a better world or open our hearts to experience love and joy. And isn't that the universal message of the Advent season? The season of hope? Isn't that the universal message of the Christmas story? That is, how we believe in, how we hope for, right? And that love gives our lives meaning and purpose and the power to redeem the world from chaos and despair. So please join the choir of the First Unitarian Congregational Society of Brooklyn in singing hymn number 95, There is More Love Somewhere.
And as we extinguish our chalice this morning, let's resolve to keep hope alive, not just to give life hope, but to bring hope to life, to search our souls for what we truly hope for, and to turn those waking dreams into realities. And let's go now to bring hope to all those whose lives we touch, whose lives touch our own. So please remain with us for important announcements uh, regarding programs and activities here at the fellowship. And afterwards, make your way to the lobby for refreshments and conversation. Stay online for a time of sharing. Or stick around to hear our postlude, which is a rousing gospel version of the African-American spiritual, There's More Love Somewhere. Uh, I guarantee you'll be dancing your way through the rest of the day as you think of that song.